But what I want to do is today is basically, I've just entitled it Kingdom Entrance Contrasted. It's kind of an interesting idea. But as I brought up before about reading through the Bible and being more consistent in the continuity of the whole of Scripture, you know, when we approach texts of Scripture, we tend to do something that we kind of get used to, and that's read a little here, a little there, maybe short pieces here and there, kind of nice little, we call them devotionals. You really don't understand those. And what are you starting to, what do you miss? Well, take a look at the fact. Let's go back 2,000 years, early church. You have a church home, a home church, that has just received the letter from Mark. What do you do? Well, your elder of your church home now starts to exposit verse 1. Believe it or not, guess what? What are we missing in those original days? Two things that we get all the time. You probably have no idea what I'm talking about, right? What two things do we not have in the original epistles or letters that we have today. Kind of helps us track where people are. <clears throat> Hint. Verses. Verses. Awesome. And what's the other big piece? Chapters. chapters. Thank you. I didn't know if we were lip reading anything. But, okay, chapters and verses we didn't have. So what did they do? They read through the whole epistle or the letter in one sitting. So it might be months for us to hear from one verse to the next. What was it for them? Minutes. Think about that concept. Think about doing that. And that's kind of what I'm going to have to do today to deal with this text. And we're going to be in Mark 10. At least that's where we'll land. But we're going to have to go a little bit further back in 9 to kind of lay the foundation. Let me give you a hint. Now this is something that I've always thought when I was younger, and when you get older, you kind of sit there and go, <laughs> I should have known this. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, let's see if we got any good thinkers here. Which one of these books are called the Synoptic Gospels? All right, let me give you this one. Which one is not called a Synoptic Gospel? John. John. Why? John's teaching is a little bit more unique and is very specific in exactly where he's trying to go. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke track the same events pretty much, this, pretty much identically. Okay? Then you have which one of these four books were not written by apostles? I'm actually holding my fingers to kind of hint. Mark and Luke. Mark? Well, who's Mark? See, when you start working in a, in a book, you want to get a little information to figure out who you're working with and who's talking to you, right? I mean, you don't get a letter from somebody and go, I don't know who this is. Let me read this. Right? You want to know. So Mark, who is this guy Mark? Well, we actually do know him. He is John Mark. And your brain goes, Ooh. well, where did we meet John Mark? Book of Acts, right? One part is you meet John Mark, and he is with his uncle, Paul, 
And who's his uncle? Are we in, in loudly? Barnabas. Thank you. <laughs> I know we're in trouble here today. All right, Barnabas. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this missionary event, John Mark takes off, goes back home. We don't know all the issue behind it, but it was enough to miff Paul out completely. So when it was Barnabas wanted to bring him back in, Paul was absolutely defiant at the point of saying, no way, he can't come. Now, I've got a lot of speculation on it. I can understand a little bit of why Paul would do it. Paul understands the ministry is under its intense ministry. They has beaten all the time, Right? So maybe he's taking a look at John Mark. It's not got enough about him to stay with it. He did take off. So Paul's saying, I don't want to have somebody who's just going to get up and take off again. No way. But again, as Steve was teaching us previously in Acts, that created a double missionary opportunity that two teams went out instead of just that one. But what we later on find out that John Mark spent a tremendous amount of time with Peter, and really the book of Mark is the codification or the writing of all of Peter's sermons. And they're very detailed. And you're getting first-hand accounts of everything that's going on down to some of the facial detail and emotional details that are going on with the people in the, in the text. So John Mark is writing. And plus another thing, too, that we've learned with John Mark historically We've learned a lot of people kind of went, yeah, 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 John Mark. He's like, he's an okay writer. Actually, we're understanding with a lot of understanding with the text that he wrote. He was an intense writer, very intense writer, much greater. And they start finding out, too, that your other gospel writers do an awful lot of direct quotes from Mark because it's that good. So we have a tremendous amount from Mark. And to give you an idea, too, again, context helps you to understand what's going on in a book. John Mark, his target audience is in Rome, the Roman Christians. And his time period of writing this is around 55 to 65 A.D., so it's before the destruction of the temple. So that's the environment that we're looking at. That's something that brings us to a fuller understanding of what the text is that he's going to be writing about. Again, I said the text today is in Mark 10. But before we can really start working through to understand what's in 10, you've got to start feeding this thing through. Again, remember what I said. When we're reading, when they're understanding and hearing this letter or this epistle, sorry, gospel or an epistle, either one, what are they doing? Maybe they're gathering together Sunday night and they're hearing it in one complete run. So they've got the whole of the picture of what's going on. What Mark is trying to communicate is one contiguous piece. And it makes sense and it flows. So I don't want to kind of cut us up too much. I want to keep the flow moving. So the stage that needs to be set for us in the text and for our attitude and posture of, of the kingdom living that we want to talk about is really going to have to be laid out with a lot of different angles. I kind of understand my parents were teachers, and I always kept hearing them say the best way to teach somebody is to bring it to them at three different angles. And I was like, do you have to stand on your head? I didn't understand that at the beginning, but the more you start understanding from different angles, you start getting what has to be taught. Not only do we come in the way that we will learn 
the kingdom, but let me help you to understand. And I know I've been thinking through this more this week just as I keep digging on it. So many times you and I think we come to the kingdom a special way. We're in the kingdom, da da we're done. Sorry, the way we come into the kingdom is the way we remain in the kingdom. And we'll amplify that a little bit more. But let's go back. Start with uh, Mark chapter 9. Find your Bible, electronic or otherwise, right? Now I'm going to do be reading out of the New Living Translation. Uh, it's just a for me. It just makes a little bit quicker sense in, in my read. But we'll start in verse 33 and go through 37. In the events going on, you've got Jesus and the apostles, and after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, kind of relaxed. Now, now picture this scene. This is a very pictographic scene that you can handle. Jesus asked his disciples, oh man, what were you discussing out on the road? (laughs) Notice all the detail here. But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Picture this, guys. These are the apostles and they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. We do the same thing. But we try to elevate it, make it sound good. Now here's where you start getting in trouble. He sat down. Who he? Jesus sat down. What's that like? Kind of reminds you back in the days when mom or dad sat down. And then, notice what it says after this, he sat down and called the twelve disciples over to him. This is going to be a spanking time, okay? This is going to be a discipline time. This is not going to be pretty. And he said, whoever wants to be first, now catch this, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. So the apostles are arguing which of the twelve are going to be the greatest in the kingdom. What? Who has been better at ministry or who has impressed Jesus more with their skills and talents? As usual, they were on the road with Jesus. Positionally, how? Where would a learner under a rabbi be? Front of the rabbi? No. Right next to the rabbi? No. What? behind the rabbi, following everything that he was doing. And they think their conversation, well, their arguing conversation, was they were far enough back and they were far enough away that Jesus wouldn't have heard them. What do you see in the text? Who heard them? Who knew what they were talking about? Who knew the intent of their heart? Jesus did. So unusual, they were behind their rabbi, as they keep were going forward. They get to the house of Capernaum, and Jesus asks what they had been discussing, arguing while on the, on the road. 
oh my word, these guys are like, oh, oh. you know, it's, it's like your parent would come up to you and go, what are you doing? Nothing, nothing, nothing. And you think at this point, the guy who was your most mouthpiece for the whole group would be what? Peter? You'd think Peter would be, well, let me explain to you, Jesus, everything. No, no, no. Guess what it said? It said, nobody said anything. They're all mouth shut going, you know, waiting for you know an awkward moment to pass away. Peter's not going to say anything because he's part of the argument. You may think that Jesus was not aware of their discussion, but he moves them and then teaches them with this hard lesson. It's for us. It's the same lesson. You know you're in trouble when Jesus sits down and literally starts to teach you, and sometimes you've seen that in your own life. Jesus sits down and says, come here. Uh-oh. What do you do? And then you start going over it. They're great times for God to actually work us through. But look at the statement he says, those who think they are great are not, and those at the least level, are the greatest. Why? Those who are great in their own eyes need no one, nothing, need no salvation. They're just fine, as they are. But the least, nor of their great need and come, dependent to God for saving in life. Now keep that in your mind. Jesus didn't say in time you'll come up to the point where you'll be great and somebody else will shift and be... No, 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 it's not a role change. You and I, the only way that we're going to stay in fellowship with God is to be always in the position of the least. Dependent. Knowing your needs and knowing only God meets those needs. So keep that in mind. Another aspect of this point to the disciples and us is that we are to be servants to all. I heard a sermon one time about this, and I kind of went, yeah, that was, you, yeah. How many times do you walk into a room at church this morning, and you're looking around seeing where your buddies are? Because you want to sit down with people that are like-minded with you. You sound so spiritual, right? So the piety is high. Or do you actually look into a room or a place where there's a gathering and you look to be able to sit down with people that you've never met before or maybe they might be a little weird, okay? You've been around those weird ones. I've been, or I've been the weird one. I don't know what. And you scope around and you go, I'll go over here with these people because I'm comfortable with them. And I have to fight this myself because that's exactly the first thing I do when I walk into a room. I want to sit by the important people. I want to sit by people I feel comfortable dialoguing with. I want to, but that's wrong. Because if I'm going to serve somebody, I'm going to be serving everybody, but I'm going to have to make sure that I'm in a servitude attitude. I want to serve. You're not going to serve anybody who's part of your group. I can't, one of the biggest things I keep thinking about at Lakeside and anywhere else, clicks, right? What are clicks? People that think just the way I do. What's that mean? You're not going to grow. You're not going to go anywhere else. 
you have that same box that you sit in. You're, you're not expanding. And Jesus says, no, 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 you need to be a servant. Now, one of the biggest things you and I have got is when Jesus washed feet, what was he showing? Now remember, what was the thing going on with the guys? This is the last night. This is the last meal. And Jesus is very aware that none of these guys care to wash anybody's feet. Oh, no, no. Didn't even make sure that they had someone there to wash feet. Jesus doesn't say anything, doesn't rebuke them, doesn't do any verbal activity. He just does what? Takes his outer garment on, grabs a towel, grabs the basin, and starts washing Dirty, nasty, dusty. I don't even want to get into it because it's before lunch. But he gets done. The main thing he says to those guys, what I've done to you, do to one another. We all are foot washers. And I have to remind myself consistently and continually is the fact that I don't care that I'm an elder or a pastor at a church. It doesn't make any difference. I'm called to be a what? A servant to serve those around me. That doesn't put me in a high lofty position. It puts me in the foot washing position. I said quite a few, long time ago when I preached on it, I remember a church I was at, we did, as leadership, we did a foot washing service at church. I'd never done one of those before. And it was the nastiest thing. Talk about humiliating. And then I kind of popped back in my head and go, Jesus did this. And he said, what I've done, you do. All right, let's move a little bit further. So you have the attitude that kingdom living is not the highest and the most Elevated, it's the least. And we're to be servants. Next we move a little bit further in Mark's text as he's driving this point through. Mark 10, verse 12 and 16. Beautiful picture. And one day some parents brought, sorry, Mark 10, verse 12. forgot to give you the reference. One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with the disciples and he said to them, Let the children come to me and don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Key point, underline, highlight. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Never Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. Children is a really rough term because in English we don't really have a lot of words that make sense. But the Greek word here really means and points to the the level of a a child. Can any be, be anywhere from infant, baby, to older child? up to their bar mitzvah, okay? But you notice the parents are bringing the children. It's not the parents saying, God, go down the street, take a left, and go, go see Jesus. No, they're being brought. They're being carried. 
And why are they bringing them to Jesus? It was a rough society, a rough world. And the only thing they could hope for is that traditionally they would bring their child to the rabbi and the rabbi would put a blessing on them. That God would care for them, sustain them, hold them, secure them. But Jesus takes this a little bit further. But then again, you've got these children that have been brought by their parents. And then you get the disciples scolding the parents going, why are you bothering the master? He's got much more important things to do. Did you guys forget that Jesus said you've got to be a, the least? and the, you, You've already forgotten it? He says, look, you have got to be what? You've got to be important, Jesus. You've got to only work with the people that are, are status building. You've got to really work to get some position here. You can't sit there and think that you're wasting time, Jesus, with these little ones and these parents. They're not going to get you up to the big level. What's Jesus do? He scolds his apostles. Nails them to the wall. To stop. It's a hard statement. Literally, the guys are saying to these parents, go away, you're not important. You're kind of an irritation. Have you ever done that? Somebody's a little bit obnoxious, and you've got to go away, or you don't want to get near them. Yes, we have, and I have. And God usually about the same time whacks me in the back of the head and kind of goes, what? Oh, are you so significant? Are you so hotty-totty that you just think you're the most amazing thing in the... No, you're not. Least. Jesus was angry. And I'm pretty sure it came out really sharp on these guys. It was enough to knock them into some sense, I hope. But look at the statement he makes. The kingdom of God, to come to the kingdom of God is like these children. All right, let's just play with this a little bit. Think back to your youth. Nah, forget about it. Think back to your parenting. Kid was born, you got your new little baby, fresh out, and you say, Go and be successful. Enjoy the world and do great things. Bye. And you're off, right? No. What are you doing? Caring. Holding. Feeding. For a couple of days? Oh, you wish. No. Months goes into years, goes into years, and then you get the grandkids back again to start the right, right again. They have to be carried. They have to be cared for constantly. Are they irritations? Yes. Are they screaming a lot? Yeah, I remember one time my sister was trying to get her uh, a deposition done and some stuff she had for a court case the next day. And my nephew was in a 24-7 scream. I had never seen a kid scream so long. And you're kind of going, God, don't they lose their voice? Oh, no, they don't. They can scream for days, you know. 
And my dad and I went over, you know, I'm like, you know, junior high, and I'm like, okay, what am I doing with this kid? And he's screaming, literally, we don't know what's wrong and everything, and it, he's just screaming. All day, all night. I, none of us got any, dad and I didn't get any sleep. Is it screaming the whole day? You're holding him, you're walking him, the whole thing. Nothing. You're caring for him. Extremely obnoxious, okay? But they need to be cared for. They're brought. But he says, if unless you're like a child, you're not in the kingdom. A child is extremely dependent. A child is extremely in great need. A child has absolutely no status. I mean, they don't provide anything to society as an infant, do they? I mean, are they out making, doing a job and making money? No. Are they doing that when they're 10? Better not be. They're not a whole lot. But take a look at what these parents do. They want to bring them to Jesus to be touched and blessed. But look what Jesus does. This is his care for children, which is us. He does what? He goes one step further. Normal rabbi would be put his hands on, bless the child, on to the next. Bless the child, on to the next. Just a big, what did Jesus do? And he held them in his arms. How many times have you known Jesus holding you in his arms? I hope a lot. Oh, and by the way, I hate to break it to you. Some of you are retired. Some of you are not, but you're old enough. Guess what your current status is before God? Adult or child? Yeah, you don't want to answer that, do you? I'm an adult. I've been here, and I'm fine, and I've got the years to prove it. I'm sorry. Unless you are like a child, you don't enter in. Remember, the scripture is very clear that it says that when we are redeemed and saved, we are now called what? Children of God. Do you ever see in scripture that you have ever become an adult of God? No. We're always children. All right. So we've talked about the first piece in nine about the least. The example was a child. We now have children that are brought to Jesus to be blessed. And he says, unless you're like a child, you don't enter in. Now let's go further and see how this application works out all the way. Let's go to a little further to something that we've seen, and I don't think we've probably pulled it out. Go a little bit further. Mark 10, start in verse 17. We're going to go to 17 and 22. Now, Keep in mind what we just covered. And let's see how this comes up as a contrast. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus said. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question... You know the commandments, uh, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, 
and honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I have obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. And there is still one thing you haven't done. He told him, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. All of this to get here. Look at the anticipation. The man ran, knelt with great honor before Jesus, probably heaving a little bit after running, at least I would be. And he's got great anticipation. You might say this guy's a real major achiever. He's the aggressive guy he wants. He's that kind of kid that we drove me nuts in school. You remember? Teacher would ask a question. <laughs> Kids, you know, teacher, teacher, teacher. And you're kind of going, quiet. You know, the aggressive one. The one's just, you know, it's always in the front of the line kind of thing. That's this guy. I mean, you think about it. He's got everything else. Luke talks about him as being a ruler, a religious ruler. He's rich. He's got it all. He needs nothing. He needs no one. I mean, you think about it. Anything the guy wants, he's done, he's got, he's achieved, he's accomplished everything, except for this one thing. He's kind of seen Jesus and everything that's going on in the ministry, and he's kind of like, ooh, I want that. I don't have that. Look at the excitement. Look at, look at the throng of people that follow this man. I just want whatever he's got. So what do I got to do? You know, maybe some money or something, or, or something I got to do. You know, a process I got to go through. I, I, got, I, I, I just really want this. He sounds like the greatest prospect, right? I mean, we've always talked about this is guy. This is the hottest guy in evangelism you ever get. This guy's running you, going, "How do I get it?" Uh, not really. Sorry. What must I? Do. He was rich, a religious leader, got it all. He could buy, he could work to get whatever he wants. He's already done that. Just tell me what I do and I will just do it. I want what you have. Now, there is kind of a little comma. He turns around and he's trying to really be honoring to Jesus, but he gives a little wacky weird. He says, good teacher. Well, hang on. <laughs> Went a little overboard on that one. And Jesus goes, mm, you call me good. The only one who is good is God. What's Jesus doing? He's now working his mind to start understanding who he's talking to. Jesus is literally saying, you call me good, and the only one who is good is God. Let me break it into your thinking. I am God. And you've come to me. And you think that's enough to get his brain to kind of working, and it is. Because Jesus 
is not just making common conversation. He's working this mind of the man to kind of understand who he is. He's not only good, he's God. But then it, I love the way the sentence works. And this is, oh, and to get back to your question, now that we've got that stewing in your mind, let's get back to the question. The question is, what do I need to do? Remember, there's that short list of Ten Commandments, right? You guys are kind of agreeing, right? right, right. How many commandments are actually in the Old Testament that you'd have to maintain and keep up and keep working on? Because they're in the Bible, so you have to maintain them. How many do you have? 613. Okay, so now we've only got 10. You've got 603 more to do. But don't worry about it. We'll just focus on the 10. No, we don't. Notice the list of what Jesus goes through. Let me go back. Jesus very simply says, okay, well, let's see. Uh, have you murdered? That's pretty extreme. Committed adultery? Stolen? False testimony? Cheat? Honor and mother? We're missing a few. Actually, we're missing the first one. But that's okay. That's coming up. Missing one critical one. That this man... And, and at first I thought when this guy says... I, I got it all, right? Okay, in Deuteronomy, you can maintain and keep the law, but you can't keep it perfectly. But there are a lot of things you can do. Can you be someone who doesn't steal, right? Lie? True. You can do all. And these are logical things that this guy, and he says, from my youth up, from my bar mitzvah up, I've kept these things. I've been very diligent in doing these. Again, here's the doer, remember? He's very good at doing But Jesus' gaze changes, and he looks at this man. What an intimate part that was communicated from Peter to Mark, for Mark to put this in, to even identify the fact that Jesus' gaze was right on him. These are piercing eyes that look straight into this man. And it's the most beautiful statement. His gaze was on him, and he loved this man. A deep compassion for him. That's such an intimate understanding of who Jesus was to all men. And his next statement was not to blow him away or to dash his enthusiasm, but as again to cause him to go deep inside and examine his life. How many times do you and I think it's what we do merits a relationship with Jesus. Think on that for a while. Say you've done something horrific in sin, which we constantly are doing all day, but you do something and then you, in your mind, going, well, I really should do something to deal with it. Maybe I'll read my Bible more. Maybe I need to... Is there really anything? What, what are you doing? Is there anything you can do with the situation? Nothing physical. You can't go on the cross. Jesus has paid for it all. The do is not you. The only thing you can do is go to the Lord and repent. Which means you're in charge, you're right, 
I'm wrong. I went independent from you and I did my own thing. I violated my relationship with you. That's got to stop. It's not what you do. You don't negotiate with God and say, well, okay, I kind of blew it over here, but I'm going to do something over here. I remember doing that when I was a kid. When I get in trouble and all this kind of stuff, then uh, maybe I'll read ten verses of the Bible today. That's a do. This is worth nothing. And he says to him, go and sell all your possessions so you can have treasure in heaven. Now, I'm not saying you guys go out and go sell everything and give to the poor, which if that's what God tells you to do, then do it. Okay, don't, don't have an argument or a discussion with it. It's just do it. But what's the real issue here? Jesus said this to this guy because possessions, material things, his skill, his wealth, his power was his God. And he violated the first commandment. Horribly, consistently. And then it says, when Jesus told him that, his face fell. Ah, English is really a rough one on this one because the Greek comes up with a little bit more. You do get an understanding of the word that's being used more in Matthew. But it literally means it's, it's the condition that you see when a storm is coming, and we're kind of used to what those things are like. You know, when a storm comes, what is it? Bright, sunny day, everything's beautiful, everything? No, it starts getting darker and darker and darker. And literally, the best way to look at this statement is on this man's face, what it became, it became darker. Darkness fell upon this man's face. His enthusiasm, radiance, and excitement to do something to get the kingdom hit hard, and the darkness came. It's the same word to use as a storm. So this man had a storm building. His face grew darker. And he what? Walked away. Because he was a man who had literally much. Is that a childlike state? Is that a child in him that says, I can't do anything? I'm incapable. I am totally dependent upon Jesus. No, that's a guy who says, I can do it all. I, I, I got it. How many times do you and I think that that's what our relationship is with Jesus? See, the thing that keeps hitting in my head even more is not only do you have to have a childlike state coming into the kingdom, you have a childlike state constantly 24-7 in your whole Christian life. You never grow up to be an adult saying, I can do this and I'm independent, and now, God, you're fine. Do your thing and I'll do... No. You and I are in a childlike state for our whole life. We are children of God. That means He's our Father. That means we're under His rule. Kingdom. It's hard. Because you and I are older. So we get a little bristled. I'm pretty sure some of you are pretty bristled right now going, I can't stay the comment. I'm going to be a childlike student. I'm an adult. I've spent a lot of years getting it. When I read this text originally, <laughs> I felt that inside of me like, well, I'm 
I'm an adult, don't call me a child, an infant. That was that resistive piece, and then I started understanding the text. If I don't come as a like a child, I'm not teachable. I can't be guided. I cannot be led. Everything that I need in my Christian life goes right out the window. Had one commentator write, he said, This man could not meet the one requirement Jesus gave to turn his whole heart and life over to God. The man came to Jesus wondering what he could do, and he left seeing what he was unable to do. Me too. So what's the whole point? This doesn't mean that we should be childish or immature in our faith. It means that we should trust God with a child's simplicity and purity. There's not a lot of arrogance in a child. They love asking questions. They want to learn. So do you see yourself as someone who is childish? Or do you see yourself as someone who is childlike? It's a big difference. Childish means you're approaching everything about God as an adult, fully independent. But childlike means you are dependent and you know that you love him and he loves you. That's why children love to go to Jesus. We should too. Let's pray. Father, you've guided us through the text and the fact that first, helping us to understand that kingdom living and the kingdom life it's the least, it's not the important, it's not the high high and mighty, but it's the least that are those who enter. Because they know the poverty they live in and they know that the life that you provide gives great strength and power, not for us, it's for us to serve and to minister and to be your servants here. You moved us then to show what it looked like to be children coming unto you. Jesus wasn't playing with words when he said that if we don't come like a child, we do not enter the kingdom. I think we try to argue that in our heads. We ask that you would break that stubborn attitude and help us to really realize day in, day out, we're children. We're yours. You love us, you care for us, at the same time you do discipline us. But at the same time too, help us to also examine our lives to see if we're like the rich man. We're coming wanting to do something, some activity, some kind of process, some kind of cash exchange that we can get something or do something to get into the kingdom. There's nothing we can do. Because... He was unwilling to realize that all the stuff around him, the stuff that he built up, his own possessions, were actually killing him from being able to be a child. 
He only wanted to be an adult, and he went away with a darkened face. The storm of his own life only continued brood. I'm pretty sure there was so much deep thought in his life as he walked further and further away, realizing that there was nothing he could do. But yet he did nothing to become a child and open his life and just let Jesus care for him. God, we're in the same boat. Help us to examine our lives continually. Help us to wake up and to think continually that we're not adults, though we are age-wise, but our response to you is like children. You're our Father. And unless we fully realize that, we are not going to see you as Father. We're just going to see you as as a ruler or something intense over our life rather than someone who is truly compassionate and in love with us. God, help us to be mindful of who we are before you and mindful of who we are before each other. That we're children and we're servants. Teach us these things deep in our life that becomes part of our life to where we live it daily. Help us to put this text into practice to grow more for you. We love you, and thank you for your care. In Jesus Christ, amen.